Hello, and welcome to the show Gold Squadron Gays. It's the podcast where two Star Wars-loving gays break down each episode of their favorite Star Wars TV shows, while also being gay as hell. I'm your host, Bradley Brower. I'm your other host, Charles Rogers. You can finally talk to me about Jedi Survivor, everyone who's been doing that. And we have a guest today. <laughs> yeah, hello. I'm your guest, Colton, from the podcast for Light and Dice, which uh, Charles is also on. And um, I'm here to talk about Star Wars. I'm very excited. Yes, and now Bradley has gotten gotten sick, I think, of <laughs> hearing me plug for Light and Dice. But for our <laughs> listeners who might have just joined us for the Mandalorian, because I know you were just on one of our uh, Bad Batch episodes. Uh, but for those listeners who are just joining us for The Mandalorian, why don't you tell everyone what the hell For Light and Dice is, and why I won't stop talking about it. Yeah, certainly. So For Light and Dice is a uh, actual play TTRPG podcast. We are using the Star Wars 5th edition rule set, and it is set in the High Republic. Um, and we're playing a bunch of scoundrels just trying to make a living in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, and it's going, it's going, um, in a very comedic matter. (laughs) It's, it's, it's interesting because we're at a point where, so we decided to split the party. Uh, I'm not going to get into the whole, like, complicated reasons why we split the party. Uh, but for ease of recording, uh, the last session, quote unquote, uh, Chris actually just recorded about two hour sessions with both groups. So the first one we recorded together, so we knew what the other group was doing. And this time we don't, because he only recorded with group A and group B. So Colton and I are actually in a position where we have both recorded episodes as of the recording of this episode. We have both recorded episodes that the other one has not heard and does not know more than bare detail of what's going on in them. So that's that's a really interesting position to be in. Yes, I'm dreadfully excited to see or to listen I guess I can't really see audio uh the the what what y'all have been up to when we when the episodes come out emotional damage lots of emotional damage perfect exactly what I would want well as yeah as long as it's not mine then, yeah. Does what does IA one in have emotions? That re- that remains to be seen. Can they simulate emulsions? Because they seem to be able to to simulate them. Yeah, yeah. Rather yeah, sim- like my co-host, uh, I don't believe they actually have them. Well, uh, yet to be determined. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> this this episode elicited a lot of emotions for me. So nice, nice pivot there, Bradley. Nice pivot. Yeah, we'll see if Bradley develops emotions when he grows out of twinkhood. Uh, but it looks like Bradley's twinkhood death is taking a really long time to get here. We'll, we'll see. I have a pool party today, so that'll really be the determining factor of oh, whether God. or not. Yeah. <laughs> so so does my boyfriend. He's also going to a pool party today. First of the summer, so there you go. Uh, I, it, you're all ridiculous, and I don't understand it. Before we dive into this episode, uh, we have a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, there's two major ones. Firstly, if you're just joining us for this episode and you haven't listened to the the intros that I recorded for episodes three and four and the beginning of our discussion of episode five with Calvin. Uh, with regards to the WGA strike, the WGA strike is ongoing as of the recording of this episode. Now, two things with that. Firstly, it is the position of this podcast that we support the WGA and the writers that are on strike. I personally think that they should get everything that they asked for, uh, and it is good that they are striking. Strikes good, actually. Uh, the other thing, though, is that 
Uh, Bradley and I are not going to be jumping into an in-depth discussion of the WGA until next week. So we're coming up on that. It's the next episode that we are by ourselves. So we had recorded three and four before the strike happened. Uh, five and six both have guests. We don't want to take away too much time from the guests, and we don't want to take away too much time from discussing the WGA strike. Things are changing so fast as well. We're learning things about like the Mandalorian season four and this whole thing with Tony Gilroy. I've made a bunch of notes of them. I'm doing research. Bradley and I are going to talk about it in depth next episode. So be on the lookout for that. Other thing is I have decided to put a long-standing argument on this show to bed because I made a TikTok of the section of episode three where Wyatt accidentally steps in the putting a pen in it argument, uh, which incidentally, if you're not following us on TikTok at Gold Squadron Gaze, uh, the animations are semi on hiatus, but I am making them for other podcast guests uh, to promote their podcasts. Uh, And I did make that one. So as I was making that, I decided to Google whether or not I was right, Bradley, about the origin of the term putting the pen back in it. And wouldn't you know it, I am. Great. So, yes, it refers to putting the pen back in a World War II era grenade so it does not go off. So I was correct about that. And Bradley needs to learn how a grenade works because I do feel like that's information he may need to know at some point in his life. Alrighty, now that we have done that, Bradley, you want to go ahead and take us into the episode? Absolutely. So this week we're talking about The Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 6, titled Guns for Hire, where the Mandalorian visits an opulent world. Colton, what is one thing you liked about this episode and one thing you did not? One thing I liked about this episode is just like this entire setting of Plazier 15. It's so cool. It's it's just like it's the vibe. Like I I I've always sort of wondered where I would want to live in Star Wars if I I if I had to be in Star Wars and the answer was usually nowhere that's shown on screen because everything that's usually shown on screen is, you know, in the midst of being terrible. But uh this place seems pretty nice. So this is my answer now for that question. My least favorite part of this episode was all the droid bullying. I did not appreciate that. Uh, yeah. I do, I do feel like if the Squonk crew were here on Plazier 15, that, that there would be a fight that would probably have broken out. Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Almost certainly. Yeah, one thing, one thing I really liked about the episode, I continue to like how campy this season is and how colorful this season is. You know, again, compared to season one, episode one, and really all of season one, this season has really not been afraid to be visually interesting. It doesn't feel like it needs to be super rundown all the time. It doesn't feel like it needs to be super gritty all the time. I watch the episode and I'm like, yeah, this is colorful and entertaining. And because it, things look different, we're, we're able to get so much diversity in the, the locations. So you have the sort of upper area where the Duchess and Captain Bombardier are versus like the streets of Plazier 15 with the lit up neon signs versus the kind of dingy droid alley bar. It's, it's, it's visually interesting to look at. I have, I have never gotten bored looking at this episode. One thing I didn't like about this episode, I cannot possibly write down every time the plot confused me on this episode, like how a thing actually works. I've noted possibly the most egregious example 
of it, but I understand that they wanted to do a condensed Blade Runner type plot, mystery noir detective plot. It it relies a lot on just sort of making stuff up as it goes along, and you can kind of tell that John Favreau was just making stuff up as he went along. So I I like the overall plot in terms of the vibe of the plot, but it does not stand up to any sort of scrutiny whatsoever. Uh, I can poke it with a stick and it will fall apart. Uh, I'm not going to do that because that would be mean. Uh, but just know that I could do that if I wanted to do that. Bradley, what about you? One thing you liked and one thing you did not. I'm with you on the did not. I think you're right. Plot wise, there's a few there's a few holes that you may or may not fall into. Um, but that's OK, because honestly, this was the pure camp episode. And that's the one thing I liked about this episode, that it was just over the moon Star Wars camp, like every single turn, everything, everything about it. I mean, even the inclusion of battle droids and super battle droids, because, you know, most people don't like Attack of the Clones, but like that is still a high camp movie. And so when you take things from that movie and anything from the prequels, really, and you put them in Mandalorian, it's so good. I just love I love the campiness. I love all the cameos. I honestly I wish there were even more cameos, like every single little person in this should have just been. And a, a superstar because like at this point like you already had three major people and i was like well honestly the corin and the um mon calamari should have been also celebrities too like i mean i know they're they're not like up at the same level as lizzo and jack black but like they're well, they're still well, up there we'll, we'll get into to who's playing in particular uh the mon cala Right. noble's son uh we're getting to who's playing him and i mean he's tangentially related to a celebrity right but my, my point is like we could have just gone full like you know hell make it like some big ass star for no reason like it would just been funny but anyway that's just the one thing I like. all righty well bradley take us into the episode we begin somewhere in space where a Quarren ship spots an approaching Imperial starship. When the ship's captain hails the Imperial ship, we discover that it is none other than Axe Woves at the helm. He has been hired to return a missing Mon Calamari son aboard the ship, who also happens to be in love with the Quarren captain. The Mandalorians leave with their bounty. Title card, Chapter 22, Guns for Hire. Uh, the Quarren captain, my literal first note, <laughs> going back and rewatching this. Okay. Oh yeah, this is proper Star Wars weird. I love the corn in the tank. I love the corn in the tank. It's so it's such good design, like for a for a for a Star Wars ship. Like that's just peak nonsense. Right. And, I and love also, it. you want to know like why? Like why? Why is she the only one in the tank, and then yeah. like the other ones are not? But then like the tank comes down, and you're like, oh, she doesn't really need it. Like I don't know. It's, there's so many questions, but it's like who cares? It's hilarious. And they drop like a fish into it, and like, do they just have have like a, a aquarium full of fish that's just they have to <laughs> ready to go for if she needs a snack or like a martini <laughs> incredible incredible cross sections of this particular ship when and i also love the exterior of the ship because if you're a it's star so wars cool. fan if you're a star wars fan the bumpy design immediately communicates the ship is from moncala like but it's not just we're doing the same moncala ship over again that we've done for every single fucking time it's shown up in something no we're going to do something cool and different with it which i, really I also like, like how weird it looks like it just looks weird like it's just like it seems like such a random design in the star wars like space like when you see if you were to see it next to like an imperial star destroyer or something like, you know what i mean like you'd be like huh that doesn't really match but i kind of like it because it's so different and weird the not matching of it is kind of what makes it match 
It's just, it's out there. Uh, they mentioned coming up or, or coming by Trask, the moon of Trask. Uh, that was the moon that episode three was set on in season two, the last episode of The Mandalorian that Bryce Dallas Howard directed. So that was a fun reference. I want to talk about three of the actors in this scene. We're going to do this here. Originally, they were spaced out in my notes, but uh, I've decided to put them all together. Uh, the most interesting of them is the fact that despite reports that she she was not going to be in this season. Mercedes Varnado is here as Casca Reeves again. Yeah, I mean, we I did read I remember reading that and they were like, oh, she's definitely not in she's it. Definitely Just not going to be in it. Here she is. <laughs> so here's as best I can put together what happened. And there is some allegedly that has to hang over some of this. Uh, I was not able to 100% confirm all of this with primary sources. This is just me remembering the sequence of events and putting the sequence of events together. So Mercedes Varnado also wrestles. She's a professional wrestler under the name of Sasha Banks. And she was originally contracted for the WWE. She worked for them. The WWE kind of sucks uh, because Vince McMahon is an evil piece of shit. Uh, I don't even know anything about wrestling. I just know I fucking hate that guy. But they don't treat their wrestlers very well at all. It's a very physically demanding thing. They don't get paid a lot of money. They don't really get benefits. They have to constantly keep their bodies in shape to be able to wrestle. Otherwise, they're going to be forced to wrestle anyway, and they're probably going to get injured. So Mercedes Varnado, she kind of wanted to poke her head into acting a little bit, and she got cast in Mandalorian Season 2. Fast forward to 2022 when she broke up with the WWE. Uh, contract negotiations broke down. She actually walked away from the WWE. And part of that meant that she was now able to take more acting roles. The broad strokes of it are, we know that her conflict, her time in the WWE conflicted with how they shot The Mandalorian season two, and uh, she's out of the WWE now, and she was able to show up in Mandalorian season three, which is fucking fantastic. She absolutely deserves to be here. The Quarren is being voiced by an actress named Christine Adams. Christine Adams has appeared uh, a lot of bit roles in films uh, and TV. She appeared in Batman Begins, Tron Legacy, uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. She's the voice of the Alchemist in Castlevania. I recognize her from that. She's in Love, Death, and Robots. She's just she's turned up in various TV shows and movies. The Disney trifecta alert. Disney trifecta oh, alert. Oh, did you find one? Did you find I one? I did. Because I she saw season Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. alum. And Tron Legacy is a Disney movie. So okay. well, actually, there we, she there has we go. our Disney trifecta. Well, well done. She's also in Doctor Who. I feel like everybody has either a Doctor Who connection, a Disney connection, or we'll find something. But If you've been to Britain as an actor, you've probably turned up in Doctor Who at some point. I guess so. Especially, well, do you see, oh, do you see Jinx Monsoon is going to be in the next season of Doctor Who, which is just yes, fantastic. I'm so excited. Yeah, Russell T. Davies knows what his audience is. He knows what his audience is. The Mon Cala nobleman's son is being played by Harry Holland. You you know Harry Holland's last name because he shares it with Tom Holland. And the other thing he shares with Tom Holland is parents. Ah, well, that's very important. Uh, Harry Holland <laughs> is Tom Holland's brother. He has turned up not in a lot and mostly in films his brother is in. 
Right. So now, I was trying to think if he was if if Tom was in a Disney movie, but I guess he hasn't been in a Disney movie yet. So Tom, Tom close. was in uh, Tom was in uh, Upward, Onward, whatever that fantasy movie. Oh, that's Pixar. So yeah, you know what? Yeah, You're right. I'll, I'll give that to him. But but no. his I mean like his brother hasn't also appeared in that movie, so he doesn't have a Disney. No. <laughs> so he appeared in notably the two he appeared in that Tom was in was Cherry and Spider Man No Way Home. Uh, I do think he had a cameo in Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, they cut then, it. And then they cut it. They cut it, yeah, because he was in it originally, and then they cut it. The scene mm-hmm. got cut. But mostly he's been showing up for cameo. He's been in a lot of short films, and then he showed up in uh, Tom's films as a cameo role. Uh, looks like this one may be his first prominent role where he's in something his brother is not in. And he <laughs> yeah, gets significant so. speaking lines. Uh, yes, that is Tom Holland's brother. So like, I know, when do we get a, a spinoff TV series of the Mon Calamari nobleman in the corner? I would, captain? I would, I would watch, I would that, watch in that in a heartbeat. Um, at least a comic book or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I need to know. We need to know how their relationship started. What happened after this? Like, are they gonna have a kid together? Like, we don't know how that their biology works. So, like, yeah, I mean, they they grossly make out on screen at one point. With the tentacles getting all up in his face. Oh my face. god, what if that's like the story? The story is like they create the first ever Mon Calicorn hybrid. And then everybody's like freaking out because they didn't think it was possible before because they were always feuding. And then now they're like, oh no, you're going to destroy our <laughs> our two societies by this child. That would be hilarious. Um, that oddly enough does touch on one of my notes that I have written. And it's just, it's so nice to see the alien, like... Aliens and the Mandalorian just being people. Because, like, for the last three seasons, pretty much we've only seen non-human characters as just being, you know, fodder. For This was my exact complaint about the literally the last episode we recorded. My exact complaint about the episode was all of the good guys are human and all of the bad guys are aliens. Yeah, it's, it's, I I saw a tweet a long time ago where it's like, there's not going to be any Quarren left in the galaxy after Din uh, has finished his full character arc. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, it's just so nice to see that there's, you know, I mean, I want to see a whole lot more of it. The captain's name is apparently Captain Shugoth. I thought that was a very funny, funny HP Lovecraft reference attached to this vaguely Lovecraftian looking alien thing. That was fun for me, personally. My final note on this sequence is I'm about 95% sure that the nobleman's son was one of the bounties offered to Den back in The Mandalorian Season 1, Episode 3. Ooh, now you're gonna have to go back and check. That's, uh, that's... I'm 95% sure that it's I the think same you're right. One. I think there was like a, a head of... There was a head of a, a Mon Cala, and Mon it was Cala. like, oh, it's a nobleman's son. I think you're this right. is the nobleman's son, which means I just he's been really, on the yeah. run for years. Oh my god, and they're just now catching him? Like, Jesus. Wow, yeah. <laughs> he's doing pretty good. I mean, I, I used to not support straight couples in Star Wars, but several pieces of media recently have changed my mind on that. So now I support this. 
Whatever this is, I support it. Bo-Katan, Din, and Groku journey to the planet Plazar 15, where they spot a fleet of Imperial warships belonging to Kreese's old army, now working as mercenaries under Axwove's command. They decide to land away from Woe's fleet due to their previous falling out, and they are directed by a pair of droids to a Hyperloop pod. Inside the pod, they scan their chain code and are summoned for a meeting with the planetary government. At a banquet hosted by Plazar 15's rulers, Bombardier and the Duchess, they learn about the planet reliance on the Mandalorians for protection and the rulers' dedication to their people's well-being. So this is not Kalevala. Uh, we all thought it <laughs> like might you. be Kalevala from the trailers. Kalevala well, does show up. <laughs> I thought it was. Kalevala does show up. This is Plazier 15. We have never seen Plazier 15 before. Completely right. new to this, to this this episode i always check now after adelphi i always check to make sure we haven't seen it somewhere before because adelphi i thought we'd never seen before and we did it was in shadow of the sith so now i always check but we haven't seen plazier 15 before i love the gradual evolution of wine ant bo katan Kreese. Because Grogu, every time we see her in the gauntlet with Grogu, Grogu keeps getting closer. And she just keeps getting more chill with him. It's amazing. I, 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 I love it. It's quality content. I do. I love that, that growing relationship. Grogu, the plot has not revolved around Grogu a lot in this season. He's just kind of there. He is just along for the ride. He's just along for the ride. He's fine with that. He's like, I'm not the focus this season. Bo-Katan, you can have your time, so I'll just be here. I'm still collecting my massive paycheck, but I'm going to do less work now. Grogu's, Grogu's really turning into a diva. I, I can understand why Yoda on J Guys and Jedi hates him so much, because he does seem insufferable to work with. One, I find it really interesting that you can take control of ships just that easily. Um, and I know this is, as the dark side divas call it, Fast and Furious Star Wars, but um, you'd think they'd use this technology in, like, space battles more to just take control of enemy ships and, you know, crash them into each other. I imagine um, it's a bit like, why don't you turn off the lightsaber with the force? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, like, there's guards in place, like firewalls in place against that. But also, Plazier 15, it seems like it's a little more technologically astute than some other places. That's I don't fair. know. It is, maybe it's like a short range frequency thing. Maybe it's like you, you couldn't do it in a space battle or maybe the ships i don't fucking know it, it could just require like an, an inordinate amount of power that just can't be like produced by a capital ship so it needs like a planetary electrical grid that was my sort of headcanon assumption sure i like that explanation yeah. that's a good <laughs> thing maybe the ship too has to be moving at a certain speed so like you wouldn't oh, yeah. be able to get a lock on a starfighter to be able to do it yeah, this is all good bullshit. Why not? This is all good bullshit. <laughs> um, my my other note is I got really excited because I thought it was um I thought those two droids that greeted them at the uh landing dock were Trip and BT One. I and also I, had the same reaction. I was I, about to say this episode's about to be unhinged. I know it wasn't. I asked like, ah, God damn it. But, you know, it's fine. It's fine. Um, also, uh, do we know anything about the Coruscant Accords? Like, 
really because that very little uh okay. they they just got mentioned this season i went i remember i think i went to go look for them in episode three and i couldn't find a whole hell of a lot about what's actually in them they're in it is weird though because they bring up plazier 15 doesn't appear on new republic charts so it's not part of the new republic but it's still abiding by the coruscant accords and then later on it's going to petition the new republic to recognize mandalore it it, it, it yeah, seems it, complicated it also has a person who's part of the new republic like amnesty program as well yeah, yeah like they makes sent sense. a guy from <laughs> amnesty john did you write a second draft of this did you george lucas style write this on a notepad because it kind of feels like you george lucas style wrote this on a notepad it's 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 star wars it doesn't need to make sense <laughs> it has to functionally get from one scene to the next scene yeah yeah, yeah. So they go to meet the planetary government, and the planetary government uh, was not who I expected the planetary government to be. Definitely not. I expected there to be a twist here uh, in terms of the characters, and there's not a twist in terms of the characters, but there is a twist in terms of the actors who are playing the planetary government. So Captain Bombardier is being played by Jack Black. You know who Jack Black is. And if you're listening to this and you don't know who Jack Black is, I would encourage you to go watch a movie. Just yeah, watch literally a movie. Any, any movie. I'm pretty sure he's pretty much in every single movie like, I can think like, of. So watch go. a good movie and chances are good. You will run into him. Find a good comedy movie and you will run into Jack Black. Yeah. Uh, he is perhaps the most famous for School of Rock, but he's also in King Kong. He's in the most recent Super Mario Bros. movie. He's the voice of Bowser. You fucking, you fucking know this guy. You know, he, you, you know who he is. He's in that one Gorillas music video for some random, inexplicable reason. Yeah, um, you'll you'll find him. He's been in a Star Wars adjacent thing before. He was in some of the bad lip reading videos. He plays Darth Vader in those. So he's sort of been in stories before. I don't think he has a Disney trifecta because I don't think he's actually been in a Marvel property, curiously enough. Yeah, I, I didn't see that on there. Oh, yeah. He's too busy making like movies that are good or at least movies that are entertaining to watch. Though surprisingly, Jack Black is not the most shocking person to appear in this scene because the Duchess is being played by motherfucking Lizzo. That, that took me out. It was honestly. amazing. I, it took I, me out. I was so I, shocked. I was in shock. Like it was so good. I was like, yes. I and was she's in shock. so camp in this whole entire episode. By the way, I, I love she her. The best hologram flower. Yes. She, it's so, oh my god, it's amazing. She understood the assignment in a she way that did. I don't see a lot of actors in this franchise understanding the assignment. My character needs, she knows her character, but she's also like playing it up a whole lot because she's just having fun. She's having a blast. Lizzo is a big Star Wars fan. She absolutely loves Grogu. So she was absolutely delighted when she was able to come in and play this part. Lizzo does not have a lot of acting credits. Uh, they are primarily music videos for what we'll get back to in a second. But she has also been on The Simpsons and she's made a few appearances. Most of those music videos are for songs by Lizzo because Lizzo is a prominent recording artist. And if you are <laughs> listening to a show with the word gays in the title and you don't know who Lizzo is, I would highly encourage you to listen to some of Lizzo's singles because I feel like you'd like them. 
So I also want to mention technologically, uh, she has a Disney trifecta, which is weird, but not for acting per se. But so she has done obviously this right for Star Wars. And then she was a voice on the Proud Family new show, like the the reboot of the show. Uh, She played herself on the show. So that technically is a Disney thing. And then she also was on the soundtrack for uh, Eternals, technically. Yes, I think they used one of her songs or something like that. So, so I technically, she has yeah. a Disney. Character. I'm gonna give it to her on a technicality. <laughs> I'm gonna give it to her. Yeah, I'm gonna give it to her on a technicality. Good for her. There was such a fucking ridiculous thing that happened on Twitter when this episode came out because somebody posted a video of Lizzo and Jack Black like dancing in the room, and this person posted a tweet, and they were doing the whole "Woe is me, I was a Star Wars fan in the late 2000s, and I got bullied and pushed into lockers, and now the popular kids get." to be in Star Wars and laughing at me. First of all, shut the fuck up. You were not bullied because you like Star Wars. You were bullied because you were fucking weird about it. Guarantee you that was the case. Second of all, uh, really Lizzo and Jack Black as the popular kids? Like really, really? Lizzo is a big nerd and Jack Black was a band kid. Like, yeah, no. Nothing about them screams. No. We were popular in high school. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't care who you we think you are. were popular in high school. Right. Like, grow the fuck up. You are probably in your 30s or 40s. Become an adult, please. Have an adult reaction to things, you fucking childish piece of shit. Come on. Lizzo and Jack Black are, are clearly just having a ball in this. You're just bitter and sad because they gave the Millennium Falcon to a girl. That ends that rant. My final note for this section after that rant rant is I just find it interesting to note that they mentioned that Plezier 15 suffered under the Empire and that yeah. their constables in the background are actually wearing old Stormtrooper armor. Repurposed I did notice that they gave off like Kenobi Clone Wars vibes because they had like the partial clone armor on on their thing. Well, it's a very like Plezier 15. It's some interesting visual storytelling because it, it reinforces the idea that Plezier 15 would rather repurpose things than throw them out. Even if they're things that were associated with something bad like the separatists they would rather repurpose them than throw them out it's a pretty important visual clue i find it so fascinating that there's like it's you know it it says it's a direct democracy which it isn't because it has elected officials which isn't really a thing direct democracies have which eh, it's fine minor note it's star wars who cares I find it very, very interesting that it's the nobility that keeps getting elected. Yeah, funny this, how that works. Yeah, which, okay, this specifically, it I would swear on, well, not a Bible, I don't care particularly about that, but, like, on a book that this story was in, heavily inspired by The Culture, um, which is a series of science fiction books written by Ian M. Banks. Fantastic, if you haven't read them. Uh, I actually named IA1N after Ian M. Banks. Um, I did not know that. That is awesome. That's where I got that. Because there's, um, in one of his books called Accession, there's a, um, all the culture is like a literal direct democracy. And it's fully automated, just like this, and post-scarcity, just like this. There's one where the uh, sort of founders of this asteroid base, that it's, you know, it's just a party 24-7, are considered nobles within this, like, realm it's just so reminiscent of this it's 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 just it's fascinating to me and that's honestly half the reason i wanted to talk about this episode is because the culture is just like my favorite sci-fi ever and this is just culture in star wars and it oh it's 
it's perfect. You know what it reminded me of? The very early, I think the last episode I ever watched for it before I fell off, and it was it was a great show. And I, to my understanding, it continues to be a great show. I've just never gone back and watched it. But it reminds me of that episode of The Orville, where judgments for like trials are done by vote, citizen vote. And that one was a much darker take on it. Where sure. the the premise of it basically seems to be elected officials are necessary because you cannot trust the everyday citizen to have the understanding of how things work and not be manipulated by the media. Like how they managed to get out of it was they were able to successfully manipulate social media uh, to get their guy free. So it reminded me like when they're talking about how well the citizens have voted for no interruption and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but they've like the citizens have voted for no interruption like the citizens continue to keep voting for the status quo. And some of these problems could be solved if the citizens would vote for something other than the status quo or vote for sustainable like security measures, but they don't. So I find the idea of a direct democracy like this extremely interesting, and the episode simply does not go into it at all. I know. I would love to have Favreau read um, The Government of No One, wonderful book on uh, anarchist politics, but... I would love to have John Favreau read another Star Wars book and not rely on what Dave Filoni tells him happened in Aftermath. Also, yes. <laughs> The group leaves the party to speak privately with Bombardier and the Duchess to discuss the issues of malfunctioning Imperial droids on Plazar 15. These droids have been causing problems in the form of accidents and assaults. Kreez suggests that involving the Mandalorian privateers to handle the situation, but the nobles explain that the city's laws prevent the presence of a standing army or use of firearms by constables. The captain offers diplomatic recognition to Mandalore in exchange for Kreez's help, and Din supports the idea. It's side quest time <laughs> it's time for that one plot in the mandalorian the only plot in the mandalorian where den needs to do a thing but the people of the planet need him to do the thing for them first and then we can get back to the main plot it is literally the most basic episode of the mandalorian this is the first true yeah i think this out of this season i think this is the first true side quest episode i mean aside from our spin-off episode which was a couple yeah episodes, that, that, wasn't that doesn't really, really a count. side quest so much yeah. as a completely different show for 35 different, different minutes. Show. right this is our first true actual mandalorian episode where he does a thing that doesn't necessarily have to do with the overall plot of the season it's just like a, oh i have to go do this thing real quick and then i'll come back to the story later well i remember people being super mad about it like super pissed off when this episode came out because they were like everybody was expecting some monumental thing because it's bryce dallas howard and she always directs the best episodes which surprise i do think this episode is one of the best directed in the season every other episode she's done she did the heiress she did uh the mandalorian episode in book of boba fett like every other episode she's done has been like this plot important thing and then we get side quest for 40 minutes in this episode and people were like oh you're wasting our time no shut up this is how the show works sometimes you go off and do side quests that's how the show works I'm like, you guys are really going to hate season four of this show because they're going to go back to the standard of just every episode is going to be a random thing. <laughs> like, it seems like anyway. Every episode of season four follows a different Mandalorian. Honestly, I would love that. 
like We're that make it an anthology series? Oh, my heart, my my screenwriter heart would die. Okay, I pitched that as a joke, but actually, no. Now that I think about now it, now that you said it out loud, yeah, that's and, actually really good. And if they get forced to have a writer's room, which they should, yes. Oh God, yes. They should be absolutely forced by the WGA to get some more fucking writers on this, like me. Uh, yes. Also, <laughs> also hire hire one. Me or Colton, one of us. You both hire preferably. Us, both preferably. Yep. I promise I will stop slagging off your show if you hire me to write it, <laughs> because then I won't have to slag it off. Because then it will actually be good. Uh, there's a hot take. No, I feel like if they had to get more writers in, doing it is like a. Uh, this is you know we have the Axwells episode, you have the Armorer episode, you have the Ragnar episode. It's like no, you could totally do that as a future season. That would be really interesting. Shout out to the Duchess's outfit uh, for mirroring the closest to a Satine Kreese mention we're going to get in this season. Colton is now frantically Googling what the Duchess's outfit actually looks like. Colton is also muted. I I swear to God, I'm going to kill Zoom one day. Uh, or, yeah, uh, I I have I have it up on my... Oh, wow, yeah, that is just... Yeah, yeah that yeah. is the color. The color story is very similar. And then it's just like the design and everything. It just, it all works. And also... Her name is the Duchess, so I don't know if that's yep. also not just a plain in your face, like, hey, guess who we're not going to show you this season. Guys, we remember Satine Kreese existed. We're just not going to mention her at all. I had written squid pro quo because of the Corin earlier. I thought it was funny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's not, but I wrote it down. So, you know, there's that. It, it probably would have been a more entertaining episode title than Guns for Hire. It's true. Which, it's when true. you think about the Mandalorian naming yeah. conventions, really should be the Guns for Hire. I would have called it the Mercenaries. Because I get I, I would have called title... it Lizzo and Jack Black take Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> well, I get that the title is supposed to refer to both Axe Wobbs and the Mandalorians and the fact that Bo-Katan and Din are hired for this job. But the Mercenaries would have fit the naming convention and still would have worked. Yeah, um... The big red button. <laughs> we do literally get a big red button in yeah. the next oh, scene. Yeah. yeah. No, but you're right. I do hate that they, I, I hate when the Mandalorian doesn't use the in the title because there's something about naming conventions for episodes. Like I feel like every show should all always have a naming convention for their episodes. It's just so nice to see sometimes. And I've seen shows that do it so interestingly and it's not boring. Like, you know, I think the Mandalorian should do like the something every single time. But like I've seen a show... I can't remember which show it was, but every season, like the first season of the show, all the titles had one word uh, titles. And then the second season, they had two word titles. And the third season, they had three word titles. And the fourth season, they had four word titles. And then in the fifth season, they went back to three. And then then they went down until the final season where they all had one singular like thing. So it was like a weird, I don't remember what show it was, but I just remember that very small. I think it was Fringe or something. I can't remember, but it was like a very interesting little detail. And I just wish the Mandalorian would do that because then you're right. This could just be the mercenaries in the security command center commissioner hellgate briefs Bo and din about the situation of rogue imperial droids hellgate shows them footage of malfunctioning droids turning off the droids is not an option as the citizens rely on them for everything leaving them unable to survive without the mandalorians are tasked with hunting
defeating and eliminating the rogue droids, and they need to consult the Ugnaughts in the lower levels for more information. Commissioner Hellgate is being played by Christopher motherfucking Lloyd. Woo! Don't know, you know, I don't know who that is, Charles. Yeah. I, you know, if I, I was born in a certain time where maybe I don't know who that is. <laughs> well, you would have to have been born in the 1920s, practically, to not know who Christopher motherfucking Lloyd is. But if you're just joining us and you've never watched a movie in your entire life, Christopher Lloyd is a very prolific long-term actor who has been acting forever. He is 241 acting credits. He is most known for Back to the Future, that franchise where he plays Dr. Emmett Brown. And he has also appeared very briefly in the Back to the Future, uh, borrowing the aesthetic of Rick and Morty as live action uh, Rick, which was an interesting bit of casting. He's in Who Framed Roger Rabbit as Judge Doom. So if you were traumatized by that movie as a kid, Christopher Lloyd is the guy that you have to thank for that. And he's also in The Addams Family and The Addams Family Values as Uncle Fester Adams. Uh, I like it. We just need to get him into a Marvel and then he'll be perfect because I, I, I don't think, see yeah. a Marvel. I, I couldn't find a Marvel for him. Yeah, I don't see a Marvel, unfortunately, which uh, Marvel, Kevin. Feige, what are you fucking doing? Get, yeah. get Christopher Lloyd in your stuff. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guarantee you, if you've watched a movie, there is a good chance that you have seen Christopher Lloyd somewhere. He's he's very distinctive. You cannot miss him. Let's see, how long has he been acting? His first role was in 1975. So the beginning of time. Got it. So someone who was born in the year that... Uh, Christopher Lloyd started acting, could legally rent a car in the year I was born. That's how long he's been acting. Wow, that's that's it's been a minute. Uh n- no, they couldn't. They would have been yeah, they would have been 15 actually. So they could not have legally rented a car, but they could have legally legally rented a car by the year 2000, which was the year I was born. Anyway, um, <sighs> I I ran into him once uh at the supermarket at my local supermarket Take a sip he, of coffee. He uh, <laughs> lives like 30 miles away from where I am. Oh, damn. Sorry, you I was... got him on the episode today. I, I, I gonna... yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was taking a sip of coffee to drown out my existential dread. You said you ran into Christopher <laughs> Lloyd at the supermarket? Yeah, yeah. He just lives, like, just a little bit away from me. Oh, huh. Interesting. When he's not in L.A. working. Allegedly. Like, uh, I should if, be if I had... Christopher Lee. <laughs> or Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sir Christopher Lee is unfortunately no longer with us. Yes. Uh, which is a shame. Although uh-huh. Sir Christopher Lee will get mentioned by Christopher Lloyd in this episode. Oh yeah, he will, won't he? That's interesting. Ooh, there's a nice little connection yeah. right there. Um, also, Professor Plum, I think, is his best role, personally, in my humble opinion. He um, just picks fun roles. He does! He just does fun roles, like this one, which is why it makes so much sense for him to be in a Star Wars. Yeah, oh, 100%. And his his acting in this is just so funny. Like, it's just utter nonsense, which is, it's, it's great. Um, it, he also understands the assignment, which is yeah. fantastic. Uh, Bo-Katan mentions the Chopyards of Carthon. Uh, we have seen the Chopyards of Carthon before. They were where Migs Mayfeld was being held in Season 2. Oh, callback there. There's a nice callback. I have here, this This plot is very Blade Runner. Yes. This plot is very Blade Runner. My final note on this section as they descend down into the Ugnaughts uh, is it's important to note here that 
While Den may trust specific droids like IG-11 and R5, Den still does not like droids. And Den still has a lot of trauma about droids, battle droids specifically, from the Clone Wars. And you don't just get over that, especially if, like, it's the exact same type of droids. So keep that in mind with some of the choices that Din is going to make later on in this episode. I do have one note left on the Christopher Lloyd scene, and I have no idea what it means. So I'm just <laughs> going to read it out loud and see if it means anything okay. to either of you. Okay, let's okay. see. Um, there is an essay somewhere that would give someone a thesis in literature about FH's thoughts on this episode. I don't know who F... Frank Herbert. Oh, I was about to of. say the Dune guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, he, because, you know, his whole thing was, well, besides, you know, loving psychedelic mushrooms, which is really why he wrote Dune. Um, like, just the whole technological dependency thing, and, like, the political power in the hands of people, which he didn't like because he was a weirdo. It's interesting. I don't know why I felt like I needed to write that down, but I did, so. Uh, well, if anyone's an expert on Frank Herbert, you can add us on Twitter and explain what you thought Frank Herbert might have thought of this episode. Please give us Twitter engagement. Twitter is dying, however. Thank God. I mean, I'm still going to use it, but thank God. Exactly. I'm, I'm of the same boat of, I'm still going to use it because I don't have anywhere else to... It's like living in America. I, I recognize that it's dying, but I, I just have nowhere else to go. The group reaches a workshop where the Ugnaughts are working. Kreez informs the Ugnaughts that they were sent by the Duchess to address the droid problem, but the Ugnaughts ignore her. Din mentions his connection with Quill, the Ugnaught from Season 1, gaining their attention and hospitality. They explain their mission, and the Ugnaughts deny any issues with the droids. Din reassures them, praising their craftsmanship and requesting their assistance. The chief Ugnaught hands them a disc with the list of targeted droids. I actually don't have a lot of notes on this scene, so I'm going to talk about who's playing Cypher. That would be the, the Ugnaught that Din and Bo talk to while they are down there. So the, the body of the suit for Cypher is actually Misty Rosas. Misty Rosas, we remember, was the person in the suit for Kawil all the way back in season one, and the frog lady in season two. Nice that they keep doing that reoccurrence of her, like every single season. I like that. So she's also Cypher in this particular episode. Cypher being voiced by Dale Dickey. Dale Dickey is apparently most known for Hell or High Water, Pledge, and Winter's Bone, none of which I've seen. But she did also briefly appear in Iron Man 3. Uh, so I'm looking to see if she has a Disney trifecta, and it doesn't look like it. She looks like she's uh, did, done a lot of TV and, and random film roles. She was in Shameless. She was in Sons of Anarchy. She was in True Blood, Southland. So it just looks like she's been in a whole lot of things, but she's actually providing the voice for Cypher. I do want to talk are... about how... Um... I do want to talk about how uh, the Ugnaughts are slightly sexist against Bo-Katan. <laughs> um, how they just completely flat out ignore her when she speaks. And then when Din's like, oh, by the way, my friend Quill. <laughs> they're like, oh, what did you say? Yeah, there's this. So I, the writing of this episode is not very good. I'm just going to throw that gauntlet out onto the table. The writing is not yep. very good. It feels like what they were trying to go for with these scenes are that Din and Bo kind of need each other. Like, they work really well as a team. They're going to work really well as a team to retake Mandalore. The problem is they forgot to give Bo-Katan things to do that work. Because every scene is like, 
Bo-Katan tries to do a thing. It doesn't work. Din does the does a different thing, and it does work. With the one notable exception of Bo-Katan shooting the droid in the chase scene and shooting Commissioner Hellgate in the final scene, none of what she does really works over something that Din does. So it is mildly frustrating to watch the writing of this episode and be like, I see what you were going for, but you whiffed it pretty hard. Yeah, it's almost like they were trying to do this thing where it was like, Bo-Katan has one way of looking at things. And then she is like, I don't like this. And then Din's like, well, here's the opposite viewpoint. And look, it works. And then we're just going to do things my way. Like, and it's, <laughs> and it's, I don't know. I just feel like they, they were trying to go for a, like you said, like working together, not against each other kind of thing. But it, it all, it just ended up being like, oh, Din's always right, no matter what. <laughs> yeah. And it does come off as slightly sexist writing to be yep. like, the man is always right. Uh, just and a little bit. The woman yeah. is, is always not correct in her actions and she is always only correct uh when she is shooting things and not talking and i'm like john this is why you should have had a writer's room because put one woman in this writer's room and you're not going to end up with this script yeah the good news is that problem with the script conducively shows that this is Star Wars. Wow. As George Lucas intended. <laughs> it is a very George Lucas problem to have with your script. Yep. Looking at you, Revenge of the Sith, where one woman in the entire movie speaks. Urba. That does not count. <laughs> <laughs> to another woman. To another woman. Yeah. <laughs> that's the that's the vegetable test right there. <laughs> oh no! Not Revenge of the Sith passing the Bechdel test. Don't, yeah, don't. the Uba <laughs> They weren't oh, speaking God. about a man, so technically yep. it worked, they technically so we're not speaking about a man. Oh, no. I, I, your honor, I hate this. Um. <laughs> well, see, and the thing technically is, that they... droid is, that's a female presenting droid or a female programming droid. So technically it works. I don't even know how that works in technicality well, because she's a robot. So it, I don't know if oh that Lord. even works. <laughs> it definitely would have passed the Bechdel test if they'd left in all of Padme's fucking scenes, which they cut out because it was taking away from the Anakin of it all. And I'm like, no, no, put yeah. them back in, not just yeah. because Mon Mothma is in them, but because they're important for understanding the plot and you consider them canon anyway. So why did you cut them out of the movie? It's already two and a half hours. You can add 10 minutes to it. It's fine. For Ugh. someone who's like gone on record on as complaining so much that they tried to like cut five minutes out of like THX and his other movie that I don't remember. George Lucas just cuts so much out of Revenge of the Sith. Like, it's so disappointing. It's... On a sidebar. It's frustrating. The novel's um, really good. Everybody should go read the Technically Legends Revenge of the Sith novel by Matthew Stover. I do have one more note with the Ugnaughts. Okay. Um, it's just... I I was getting Omalos vibes from this whole uh, situation where it's like this one small group in the basement that's like keeping this fantastic society functioning, right? Where it's just like, I, it, it's weird because like- I, I think you not... have finally found a reference that neither Bradley nor I get. Oh, okay. So Ursula K. Le Guin, right? Amazing author. Fantastic. I love her. She's wonderful. And literally holding the book up in the Zoom call, yes, by the way. I, I have my... brought the book and is holding it up in the Zoom call. I, I brought my literature here to defend my thesis about season three, episode six of The Mandalorian. Um, it's uh, it's one of her best short fiction um, pieces 
pieces. It's called um, Those Who Walk Away, or The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. I should get this actual name right. Uh, yeah, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. It describes this amazing, perfect city. Like, just absolutely everything's provided, everything's wonderful. Except the entire city is only amazing because there's a basement somewhere where a small child is, like, living in utter darkness, eats terrible food, is pretty much being tortured and the society only exists because of the child and it uh the the short story is named after the people who discover this and leave the the city um it's wonderfully written um i'm not doing it justice in this uh you know uh 30 second synopsis but um it's it's just it's like i find this fascinating and it's it's not fascinating in the way i want it to be fascinating where favreau intended it to be fascinating because i guarantee he did not it's fat <laughs> but it, it i wish feels it was a lot to me like john favreau has read the read the wikipedia article for, for some of these things yes. and has not understood the themes or concepts of the actual text but he knows this is a thing that has turned up in sci-fi before so he has decided to do his version of it without thinking about the implications of that at all precisely because like are these ugnot slaves like i don't think so it doesn't you know fit the vibes of this place because you know it seems it's like, for everything yeah yeah so they don't precisely need it, yeah. um it seems like, like they enjoy yeah they like, enjoy repairing droids they enjoy repairing there, droids yeah. that's kind of their thing which we're gonna put a pin in the whole enjoying working thing because there's a longer <laughs> rant to be had about that in about two scenes that we're gonna save but yes. yeah that's i i feel like pleasure 15 could be a really interesting fodder for writers that are good yeah like i want to write so many things set on Playzier 15 because it's fascinating. But Chris, if you're listening to this episode, Playzier 15 in for Light and Dice, when? We'll go. We'll make you do it. We went to Yagduel. You had to make up a whole bunch of lore because we decided to go to the math planet and no one's ever written anything about the math planet. Which is also such a shame. I want to see Yagduel in season four of The Mandalorian because it's just so cool. Like, it's such a cool concept. Um, but that's neither. Do you really trust Jon Favreau with it? Uh, when he gets the writer's room after the WGA strike is over, yeah, yes. Yeah, when the WGA forces him to have <laughs> yeah, a writer's yep, room, yep. yes. But yeah, that, that was just, I just wanted to, like, touch on the, the Ugnaughts because, like, it, 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 it just, it could be so cool, but it's, it's, it's not talked about. And it should be Star Wars. Thanks to the Ugnaughts list, the pair head to the loading docks to find the next malfunctioning droid. They encounter a B-1 battle droid foreman who requests their identification. Kreese explains their mission, and the foreman reveals that the B-2 battle droids loading the docks underwent maintenance as a precaution. To test the foreman's theory, Din provokes a B-2 battle droid leading to a chase through the city. The Mandalorians pursue the droid, dodging its attacks and causing a commotion. Eventually, they corner and disable the droid. Kreese discovers a spark pad labeled the Resistor and decides to investigate its location while Constable droids handle the scene. The B-1 battle droid on the loading docks, uh, we'll just get this out of the way now. You want to take a wild guess who's voicing the B-1 battle droid? Anybody? Anybody want to take a guess on on who's voicing the B-1 battle droid? Uh, Corey Burton? No. No. Nope. Good guess, though. Is it Matthew Wood or the other? It's Matthew one? Wood. Oh, okay. Yeah, there you go. It's, it's Matthew Wood. Matthew Wood, who has just been doing this forever. Yeah, I shouldn't. If you're a Star Wars fan, I shouldn't have to tell you who Matthew Wood is. 
go look him up. He's the voice of General Grievous. He's the voice of every B1 battle droid. If you've recently played Jedi Survivor, he gets some of the best lines in the game. I love that. As the B1 battle droids. But yes, that's that's who that was. Bo-Katan has an interesting line where she says, I haven't seen battle droids since the Clone Wars. And it got me thinking, I was like, when did Bo-Katan see battle droids? Did, when did that happen? Probably off screen? Because I can't think of a single episode where Bo-Katan saw a battle droid. Because they're not in the Friend in Need. Right. They're not in the place where they're being chased by Anakin and Ahsoka. They're not involved in the fall of Mandalore. That's Death Watch and the Maldalorians. And they're also not involved in the Siege of Mandalore. So the question is, when did Bo-Katan actually see a battle droid? I mean, that, well, it's implied that, like, Din was rescued by the Watch, right? Kind so of. By, it, it, it's explicitly stated they were, that he was rescued by Death Watch. Yeah, so, like, I, I'm assuming Death Watch protected a lot of people from battle droids, right? We see Din, because she was, Bo was a member of Death Watch probably around the time that um, they were rescuing people from battle droids. Um, also, this is a sidebar. In the Fall of Mandalore arc, there's a droid that's on screen for two seconds and we never see anything like it again. It says, Welcome to Mandalore, and then gets shot in the head by, uh, um, I think the Pikes. And it's my favorite droid in all of Star Wars. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it would, it would, I, I just think it's off screen when they're rescuing and people and finding okay. foundlings. Yeah, because I was like, when when did that happen? Because I didn't remember seeing that. And yeah, I, I guess they were protecting they were protecting Mandalore sovereignty in their system, and they would have had to fight some battle droids. And she's probably also watched the news on the holiday. <laughs> yeah, before, I mean, you know what I mean. No, I mean she's true. not she's not completely in the dark of what a battle droid looks like or has seen one in a while. But obviously, she might have not seen one in person in a long time because. It's just been a long time since they've been active or used. Uh, speaking of the battle droids, this is the one thing that I had to note. Like, I don't understand why Din kicking the battle droid worked. Neither do I, and I was so sad to see it. Like, no, don't, don't bully my, my, my children. Like, I, I get his logic. I get the logic of a malfunctioning droid is going to be phased by this. But what I don't understand is when I stopped and thought about it for two seconds, I was like, why is the droid that's malfunctioning going to be the one that's going to freak out and run away? So this is I, this is reminiscent of iRobot. It's the same scene in iRobot. Yeah, where... again, yeah. John Favreau well, has right. read the Wikipedia article for the <laughs> iRobot movie and decided he wanted to do his version of this scene, but he has not watched the movie in a long time, nor did he understand the plot or the themes of that movie. Well, I also think that the, the whole thing is that these malfunctioning droids either have some kind of autonomy or they don't, they're not following the general programming that some of these other ones are, so that that means that they would react to things because they have a different like thing going on in their okay so the memory. droid having free will and self-preservation is a mistake in the code is that the implication of this that's, scene? i'm assuming that's what oh, that means God. i think that's what the whole theme of this episode is is that if okay, they have John, free will they'll, John, they'll destroy you the have city. to actually watch the movie you have to watch it and understand the themes of the movie you can't just do the irobot scene again with no understanding of, of why that this episode wants to be a reference to so much good sci-fi and it's so bad at it. It really is. 
Also, did you know, like, iRobot was never originally supposed to be the Asimov story? It was like a murder mystery on a space station, and then got rewritten, like, nine times, and then eventually just Asimov's name got slapped onto it, and then it got shipped out to a production company. That's Hollywood, baby! Yep! <laughs> That's Hollywood! Um, the script you sold is almost never going to end up being the one on screen. And that's also a problem like that's going to come up probably in future WGA negotiations. No, definitely. Not this one, but it's definitely a big issue in Hollywood right now that people will buy a script and essentially they're buying the idea and they're going to hire somebody to completely rewrite it. That's what happened with Don't Worry Darling was the original writers for that. Basically, they bought the idea and then they rewrote it a whole bunch. Anyway, that was that was all of my notes for the loading dock scene. I have just I would die for any B one ever. Um, I would happily put my life down for for any of that class of droid. I love them so much. Yes, um, we remember uh, we remember Colton's love for the B one battle droids from the last episode Colton was on, which was the uh, episode episode three or four of the Bad three. Batch season. Episode three of the Bad Batch season two. I keep forgetting what Bad Batch season we're on. I keep forgetting about the Bad Batch. Yeah, I mean... When it's not airing, I keep forgetting about it or wondering occasionally, like, oh, yeah, I wonder when season three is going to come out and tie up that whole story, and then I completely forget about it again. My note for the chase scene uh, basically boils down to what in the Mass Effect Citadel is this? Yeah. Yeah. Alternate alternate note that was discarded was uh, Bo-Katan enters her Commander Shepard era. Bo-Shep? Bo-Shep. <laughs> um, I'm going to name I... my next fem-Shep uh, Bo-Katan. Amazing. No note. They even, the default Shepard and Bo-Katan kind of look alike. Yeah, if you just change the hair to red. The default fem-Shep is a redhead. I've not played Mass Effect in such a long time. <laughs> yeah, the default you can just go with does look a lot like Bo-Katan. Yeah, oh yeah. Even huh. kind of sounds a little like Bo-Katan. I'm just saying, this whole scene gave me Mass Effect Citadel vibes. Particularly the Citadel DLC from Mass Effect 3. That was such a fun DLC. That was such a fun DLC. I, w- I want a re-release of all of Mass Effect with the last 10 minutes removed <laughs> and about 80% of the combat removed, and I think it'll be the perfect game. Wow, that's a hot take. Yeah, no, I, I I stand by that. I still need to play Andromeda, but here's the thing, I kind of don't want to. That I, I've also not played it, and that's also sort of my feelings on Andromeda. The only note I have for this scene is Fast Droid. Ooh. <laughs> I did have a note down here that they, they found a matchbook, which again is very noir. It's a very noir plot point, too. You find a matchbook from a bar, and you trace it back to that bar... So they found the Star Wars equivalent of a matchbook, which I'm like, okay. Which I I personally love. Like, I loved that detail because it's just utter nonsense. I, I like utter nonsense in my Star Wars. If it, it if it starts making too much coherent sense, I just sort of zone out. Except for Andor, I guess. Bo and Din arrive at the Resistor, a droid bar. Kreese engages in conversation with the droid bartender, presenting the spark pad belonging to the rogue droid as evidence of the droid's malfunctions linked to the bar. The bartender defends the droids of the city. While the New Republic would scrap such droids, Playzare 15 provides them with a second chance. Kreese inquires about the beverages the malfunctioning units ordered, and the bartender reveals that all droids on Playzare 15 are served a lubricant that both protects against mechanical wear and refreshes their programming. They discover the malfunctioning droids all use the same 
same batch of lube. So I was trying the entire time in as Bradley was reading that to communicate uh, my dislike of this scene in my facial expression. And he, he, that final line broke me. Um, I could, <laughs> you know, when I, I was writing it, I did it I, in a fun I couldn't way. Keep just it up. It. <laughs> you, you did it. You, you did it in such a way as you knew that it would get a reaction out of me. And unfortunately, you are completely correct in that very quickly uh the droid bartender is being voiced by seth gable seth gable uh tv that guy he mostly does very creepy roles uh he's cotton mather in salem he's in american horror story as jeffrey dahmer he's been in arrow he's been in fringe so he's he's the one playing the voice of the bartender droid here Nice. I think yeah, it's... He, he's a creepy he's a creepy he's a creepy dude but you know he also looks like um he looks like the little brother or related to uh Sebastian Stan Sebastian Stan yeah he does don't they look get... like they could be like cousins or brothers or something Do you, like, yeah. I don't know why. yeah you could definitely cast them as yeah I could see it yeah so that being said Seth Gable as Luke when oh my god oh my god I fucking hate you so much because he looks like a little bit different version of Mark Hamill, so that kind of works out, I guess. Uh, I don't know. Like, because that's what Sebastian Stan looks like. He looks like Mark Hamill, so then there you go. It's like a off-brand Mark Hamill. That's that's what he looks like. Thank I you. It. I, I hate it. it. I hate it. So, Charles, you didn't like this scene? No, yeah, I I'm, I'm going to have to defend the droid scene only for the fact that, one, a droid bar makes no fucking sense whatsoever. Two, I, I like love it so much that it makes no sense. <laughs> I like that a droid bar exists, and I was really feeling this scene. Like, when the scene first started, I was really feeling this scene. I even was going to give Din a pass, because, yes, he does threaten the droid and then basically be like, oh, they can't reason, and he's immediately proven wrong when the bartender droid is like, no, actually, I, I do want to help, and I can reason, and I have thoughts and feelings, uh, and emotions and desires. And it's just my desire is to be a servant to humans. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what the fuck did you just say? It's like, oh, no, our organics created us. And we just love to be useful. And, and we're given a second chance here. And we just want to give back. And I'm like, oh, my God, no. Why? Why? Why did you write that the droid servants want to be servants? This is messed up. So I would like to offer a, a counterpoint. First off, okay. I would like to say that if this was better fiction, this would be addressed. Yes! Uh, this would have been slightly better than, we're just so grateful to the organics for creating us that we want to give back to them. And I'm like, you were literally programmed to do that. Yeah. We, you were not given a choice. Uh, there is quite a bit that has actually been made of the fact that you were reprogrammed but i mean go off like this is your idea i guess yeah it's so it's yeah it in the context of star wars it's a bit iffy because you know droids are often seen as non-sentient and it's you know they obviously are it's something that lucas i don't think thought about in the first star wars movie and it's just kept going because you know george lucas doesn't think about things to bring up the culture again okay which again is being held up in the Zoom call. Yes, uh, I, 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 I brought my literature this time. I'm prepared. Uh, it the entire society is run by robots. Like these giant cal incalculable computers run everything. So organics or non-functional AI systems can just you know enjoy life, do art, play games, 
do whatever. And it's described that, like, it's the exact same thing. It's not that, like, they haven't taken over because they want power. It's just, like, it takes so little of effort for them to take care of these people. They might as well, right? Like, it, it's less that they're, like, actual servants and more just, like, yeah, sure, we can manage space station for you it's it takes like point zero 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 one percent of our processing power so why not and i i think it's i think favreau is trying to do something along those lines right where it's 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 seen as like what else are we going to do and you know it's not that difficult because you know droids don't need to eat they don't need to sleep they don't have the physical needs that we do that make work difficult so right. I think if, if they had leaned into that, right? Yes. If they had leaned into, it doesn't take that much effort for us to give back to the people who gave us a second chance. And they kind of, the problem is it's muddled bad writing because they yeah. also bring yeah. up the point of we would have been sent away for scrap and they gave us a second chance, which, okay, fine. I can, I can give that as a sort of lighter version of the amnesty program that it could work as a, a sort of, counterpoint to that to where something like the mc program is actually working however they then did the entire line about how organics created us and blah blah, blah. and that's where i get into the like oh this is the mm, this is uncomfortable to watch for the star wars because star wars yeah has a bad history of treating droids coding them a certain way and treating them like grateful servants that are also lower class and I'm like, fucking yikes. And the one time, the one time they had a droid that was like, hey, maybe we should get equal rights. It was treated as a joke. And then she died. Yeah. Yeah. That was. Yeah. I rewatched Solo recently and that was. Yikes. It was. It was I, I love yeah. that movie, but like, that specific part, like, um, it is. It's very thoughtless writing in this scene. That's that's my issue with it. Is it they didn't think it through, and that's the problem. Yeah, John, I Favreau wrote this from a neoliberal political mindset, where and a post scarcity society like Placer Fifteen just can't really be written successfully from that political mindset, unfortunately, because the, there's not the like. Because fun fact. Uh, all art is political, actually. Um, I know that, Star that's Wars a hot is especially take. political, yeah. actually. <laughs> yes. Weird that uh, a show with war in the name would be political, but, you know. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, 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 it, it could, it, this episode could be so good. It could be so good. And it wasn't. It wasn't. It really well, kind of wasn't, actually. I still, I hold that it's one of the best episodes in season, in season three. It could have been so much better. <laughs> Once again, if you're just going to watch it and enjoy it and have fun for 40 minutes, it's one of the best episodes the show has ever done. If you want to apply any sort of logic to it at all, or you want to question anything anyone says in the entire episode, the whole thing's going to fall apart. It's, yeah. it's going to collapse immediately. Uh, it's a bit like, yeah, like a, like a really well-decorated cake that's hollow inside, and it's just the frosting that someone has stacked up to look like a cake. And so if you go to try to poke it with a knife, it all falls apart immediately and just collapses in on itself. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I didn't like that bit. I didn't like that bit at all. And again, I think the overwhelming theme of this episode is if it had been written with any more thought, then it could have been so interesting, and yet it was not. Uh, Nepenthe, I don't think we've ever seen in Star Wars before. I think it's completely new to this episode. You think it's, silico it's silicone-based? I think it's water-based. 
personally, because I do think that it's so sticky though. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Or maybe I it's a hybrid. Wonder... Maybe it's a hybrid. <laughs> maybe it's a hybrid. I don't know because I've always found uh, I've always found water base uh, is just a little easier to to clean off of my droids. It is easier um... to clean, but unfortunately, it's not as effective. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it depends yeah. on the specific situation that you found yourself in. So, I mean, the question is, Plazier 15, what sort of <laughs> situation is Plazier 15 in? Yeah, I'm sure there's debates that rage in, in droid connoisseur circles and websites amongst what the best type of Nepenthe is for a given situation. Uh, but I'm not sure we can answer that question here today, despite our collective experience in the matter. <laughs> Speaking of the Nepenthe, um, this is a, I think, a fun fact. It's actually um, a reference to Homer's Odyssey. Um, oh, really? Yeah, it, it's uh, in the Odyssey it's described as a drug that um, can banish grief and sorrow from the mind. So it's just a, a neat a neat little reference uh, in Star Wars. Yeah, the, which the I Greeks, thought really cool. The Greeks did know their lubricant quite well. <laughs> Greeks did. Uh, we broke Colton. They are presently muted, uh, but have just turned red from laughing at that particular statement. It's fine. It's <laughs> we're fine. We're fine. Uh... <laughs> Once again, with the literary references that like, okay, it, to my recollection of the Odyssey, isn't banishing grief and sorrow a bad thing? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, it's uh... I've not read the Odyssey in a long time, so I'm not. Same, that's why I'm like, um, wasn't but, it a bad thing when they they took the thing that made them not be sad? Yes, I, I'm pretty sure th this wasn't part of the Lotus Eaters bit where they were trying to escape it, like trying to, uh, I'm pretty sure this was something that was offered to Homer, or not Homer, <laughs> to, to Odysseus, <laughs> to Odysseus. Um, and then like he turned it down. Is sort of the context of the Nepenthe, but I could be wrong about that. But yeah, I think it's sort of seen as like this is an easy way out, but Odysseus, Odysseus did not take it. Uh, once again, John Favreau has read the Wikipedia article for the thing, but did not understand the plot of the thing. Yep. Though I, I, I think it, I think it was a cool enough like. I think it was cool. I, 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 I will not fault jo John Favreau on this one specifically because it's just Star Wars naming conventions, and Star Wars naming conventions are bad. <laughs> <laughs> so at least like a classics reference, I, I, I'll, I'll accept. It's not "I'm a gun die Clone Wars." I'm looking at you. Okay, "I'm a gun die" was possibly one of the best Star Wars names in all of Star Wars. So yes, um. That, I mean, that's fair. In the original idea for Flad, I was going to DM, and it was going to be set in uh, Empire Times, and I was going to make a plot point be a holocron from I'm a Gun Die. Didn't happen, so. Yes, because uh, unfortunately, Hope and I were also talking to Chris about an idea at the same time. That was the one that eventually was going to get made. Who knows? Maybe maybe we'll come back to that idea one day. Yeah, we could do Flad Visions, where we each do like one-shots. Oh, that's um, a good idea. We should bring that up with Chris. We should. 
Later, Bo and Din examine the remains of the malfunctioning B2 battle droid and discover active nanodroids embedded in it. They realize that the nanodroids were illegally purchased by Commissioner Hellgate, the head of security. Confronting Hellgate, they learn he plans to use a failsafe to unleash the droid workforce on the civilian population. However, Kreese stuns him before he can activate the failsafe. Kreese and Din present Hellgate to the Duchess, who sentences him to exile. In gratitude for their help, the Duchess grants Kreese and Din an audience with the Mandalorian privateers and bestows upon Grogu the title of Knight. They bid farewell to their hosts. The lab technician in this scene is played by Jen Kober. Jen Kober is a comedy actress who has appeared in American Reunion, has appeared in Hacks, has bizarrely appeared in American Horror Story, uh, which kind of breaks the whole comedy vibe but as also well, appeared in... technically american horror story is a technically anything. Yeah, d- depends on what season really depends on right. how you're watching american horror story or anything that, that fucking hack ryan murphy has written uh or created or is getting money from without having to actually contribute anything we don't have time for me to litigate my feelings on ryan murphy uh but jen cober has also appeared in the middle and Kobe enthusiasm so that's who's playing our lab technician here my only note about this scene is it's just a really classic detective noir scene again. They go into the, yeah. the the morgue and they examine the body and they discover something ominous about the body and it leads them on a clue. And I'm like, yeah, this is this is just this is more detective noir stuff. I love that there's a robot morgue on this planet. Like that's just neat. Instead of like it being a workshop, it's a it's a morgue. Though, <laughs> like I mean, it also could just be a morgue that was also used for to put a robot in the freezer. But I don't know why they would do that. So my assumption is it's just a full robot morgue. I'm gonna I, go with full robot morgue because I'm also yeah, gonna go with full robot makes, morgue. It, it would make sense only because they're so dependent on robots and this or I'm sorry, yeah. droids and this whole entire thing. So they're like, oh yeah, we we would have of course have a place where we keep them in a morgue. But wouldn't you just fix them and just move on like why would they be in a morgue i don't know what the yeah like it's again it's favreau being favreau uh because <laughs> we saw another robot morgue earlier where all the ugnots were working on broken or er, uh droids so like do the droids go to this morgue first and then go to the ugnot workshops or i, I guess think... that would make sense yeah that that would right? make sense because that's the repair so like the the morgue is the place where they diagnose like what went wrong or what actually is wrong with the thing and then they send it down to the ugnots with a list and like here you go here's what's wrong with it i feel like this is way more thought being put into explaining the episode than john favreau put into writing it that's fair yeah I, I do love that it was a interrog a repurposed interrogation droid. It looked like um, that was assisting in the morgue. Though I could be wrong about that. Ah, uh, no, I think you're right. I okay. think they had painted a imperial interrogation droid white and removed the just random syringe that is just um <laughs> that's just glued on the side of all the interrogation droids. Also, can I just say how happy I was to see that it was a story that it wasn't just dro uh dro- droids droids going haywire like it wasn't a evil robots story it was just some guy being a bastard and like corrupting the droids it's so refreshing to see that was nice that was nice that it was not actually the droids fault 
Like it wasn't an error in the programming or anything. It was yeah, the the problem was an old white guy. The problem was uh, always an old classic, white guy. Classic classic story. <laughs> it's a, it's classic a tale Star as old story. as time. It's a classic Everyone's Star Wars story. Fine. Interestingly <laughs> enough, everyone's doing fine, and then one old white guy decides to ruin it for everyone. Uh, a old white guy with really weird, outdated politics too, because uh, yeah. he has some opinions on on the Republic that hasn't yeah. been around for thirty years. Uh, in my notes, I wrote in quotes, I support democracy. Uh, seconds later, acts against the democracy. <laughs> um, which, you know, great way to support it. There. Great way to support your argument. Yeah. Uh, he does quote like, because again, it's important to keep in mind that the separatists, at least the separatists that were not the Amazon corporation that was actually running the war, that the separatists gen genuinely believed that they were the more democratic side of the war. That we saw how their, their Senate in the uh, Heroes on Both Sides episodes, which is one of the best episodes of the show, we saw how their Senate operates kind of as more of a democracy than the Republic, yep. shockingly enough. Um, and like, that's how Dooku was able to manipulate the planets into doing this, was by basically saying, no, you're going to be more democratic. And then Dooku goes off and does whatever he wants anyway, because he's Count Dooku. He's actually evil. Twitter thread from yesterday. Do you think Count Dooku was actually evil? Yes! Yes, he was! He was bad. He was played by Sir Christopher Lee. Good guys do not get played by Sir Christopher Lee. That's how you know he's the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, also, Charles, uh, yes. you'll find that the Separatists actually had a parliamentary system, not a Senate system. Um, and, uh, yeah. It was the, uh, did you just um cold? actually me on my own uh, yes. fucking show? Yes, I did. I did. Did mm -hmm. you just um actually on my own show? Okay. Yep. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but to go back to the like, is Dooku a good guy? He was also just a like an actual space Nazi. Like, I think people are forgetting that fact too. Um, like he was so filled with anti-human sentiment that it was or anti-alien sentiment. Or, yes. Yeah, anti-non-human sentiment. Also, he, you know, didn't realize that droids were sentient as well, because he was, like, in that one book, like, they're using human lives, we're Dark just disciple. using droids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and if you want to hear me talk about that scene at length, you can listen to the Dark Disciple episodes of First Steps, a Star Wars podcast where I guested on to talk to them about that book. But yeah, that's his whole, like, moral high ground thing, is he's like, well, they're using actual living, breathing people, and the only people on our side that have died for the conflict that weren't killed by the Republic were people that died because they wanted to fight. And I'm like, that's a lie. Um, you're lying there. That's a lying that you're doing. But yes, uh, Dooku actually gets a name drop in this episode. Uh, Commissioner... Comm is it Commissioner? Commissioner Hellgate uh, does specifically name drop Dooku as a visionary. Uh, Dooku, for those of you who are not aware, was a character who appeared in Star Wars, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith, and was a major antagonist in Star Wars The Clone Wars. So if somehow you haven't watched those movies, or watched that show, uh, he's from that. That's, that's who that guy is from. And then Bo-Katan stuns him because she hates politics. Which does track, given the fact that the exact politics that he's spouting off are politics that she might have at one point maybe kind of agreed with. Yeah, yeah. Even though I don't think Death Watch were ever technically separatists. I think they, I mean, I think they liked the separatists slightly more than they liked the Republic. I would, I would give that, although we do see that they fought the separatists. <gasps> 
And they allied with Maul. Uh, I mean, uh, Maul's his own can of worms. Yeah, but Maul like, was... I, they were never technically allied with the Separatists, but they probably would have shared a lot of the Separatists' beliefs. Yeah, because, like, they were so against Satine, and Satine constantly tried to ally herself with the Republic without allying herself with the Republic to remain neutral. So, like, I... Yeah. There's a lot going on yeah uh, yeah they they walk up into the uh thing to talk to lizzo and jack black again as they're playing some sort of like ball game with uh little insects anyway um commissioner hellgate uh says to captain bombardier that uh, if that's not the quack to calling the stifling slimy i also have that in my notes <laughs> we've we've heard that line before multiple times in star wars now they are so proud of that line. It's it's a good line. I like that line. It's I I've been trying to figure out how to use it in Flad for like two months now. <laughs> well, you'll get there. I believe in you. And then Grogu is knighted by Liza, which is good and correct. I find it interesting that they kind of sort of have prison abolition, sort of, where they don't have prisons. They just sort of say go over there. And once again, we have an interesting concept. Yep. <laughs> they basically have Space Australia that they are not going to explore because we have to move on back to the actual plot of the season. I do have one more note, and it's sort of after this scene, but before the next scene. Um, I find it really interesting that the architecture, at least on the outside of the cities, really is reminiscent of Mandalore, where it's like just these massive dome cities. Um, I, and I, 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 I thought that was like kind of an interesting parallel. Um, I also find it interesting that the outside of the dome is really lush, and the inside yeah. is really white and barren. As It's like a reversal of Mandalore. I, I think they were trying to do something there. I'm just not sure what. <laughs> uh, I would I would say that it was supposed to parallel the fact that the Mandalorians currently on the planet are not acting like Mandalorians, uh, and it is the opposite. But I'm not going to give the show that much credit. The group travels to the Mandalorian encampment, where they are met with a cold reception from Woves, who questions Kree's intentions. Kree's challenges Woves to single combat for leadership, and they engage in a fight. Kree's emerges as the victor, but Woves refuses to yield, insisting that Kree's must possess the Darksaber to be the true leader. Din offers to give Kree's this Darksaber, revealing that it was taken from him, and Kree's rescued him a few episodes back. So basically that means she owns it. The Mandalorians acknowledge Kree's as their leader, and she accepts the Darksaber, symbolizing her authority. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about that one bit where Axe Woves uses the flamethrower and it does nothing. She deflects it with her fucking shield. She deflects <laughs> it with her fucking shield. Love that. It's yes. a tiny little shield and she's like, Whoop, deflect, flamethrower does nothing. He doesn't use it to attack or anything. It He doesn't use it as a distraction like it occasionally can be used for. Uh, it does nothing and contributes nothing and there's no reason for it to be there. Another win for Charles. I think there is, but I don't think we have time to engage in this debate. What What does it do? What does it do in this fight, Colton? How uh, does it help Axe in any significant way? It forces Kree's, or uh, forces Bo-Katan to use her shield in a more defensive scenario, giving Axe Wolves time to recover. For like two seconds. Two seconds is a lot. And, and in a hand-to-hand Mandalorian fight. Uh-huh. I feel like there's other better ways he could have done this. Probably, but not as cool. Ugh. When in doubt, if it's cool, they'll do it. So that's, yeah. I feel like that's the kind of the thought process with the flamethrower at this point. It's just like, does it look 
cool or interest, visually interesting when they do it. Yes. So we're going to show that her shield deflects flames. Maybe that'll be helpful later on in the season. Maybe not at all, but we'll, yeah. we'll do it anyway. The full store reminds me of that one bar in Savannah that I remember a long time ago had uh, like measured pour. And I asked them once, no other bar around here uses the measured pour. Why are you using it? This doesn't make a lot of sense. And the response I got was, well, we paid a bunch of money to install the measured pour system. So now we're going to use it. That's how I feel about the flamethrowers. We paid a lot of money for the flamethrowers, so we're going to use them. Even if a blaster bolt works just as well. This is fair. I mean, I I still think it's cool. Also, we have seen those shields uh, block flamethrowers in the past um, in the Sie uh, Siege of Mandalore, uh, the Ahsoka's... That was the Siege of Mandalore, right? When Ahsoka or... is, yeah, Siege of Mandalore and the Phantom Apprentice both yeah, yeah. covered the Battle of Mandalore. Yeah, and so Siege in, of Mandalore. In that, we did see um, a flamethrower versus a shield. So this isn't like new. Not uh, surprised. The shield wins again. Yeah, well, I mean, sh shields are just good. They also block blasters. So, you yes, know. And if you wanted a second to recover, you could also use the blaster. Not if you don't have a, a blaster in your hands. It takes time to, to draw the blaster. Anyway, the only note I had for this scene was just, oh, Baby Yoda is scared for Ampo. Oh, yes, I did like that little <laughs> shot. I, I have a couple of notes about this scene, and we're just going to run down them. My first note is, wow, there are a lot of hot Mandalorians. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, hello, hello. Like, the one, there's this very beautiful black man standing next to a twink that we will get back to in a minute. Can't stop staring at him. There are just so many beautiful Mandalorians. I don't, I don't know what to do with this information. But then we have a serious bit where Bo-Katan's, basically they're like, Din Djarin's not a real Mandalorian because he wasn't born on Mandalore, showing their own biases in the same way that they once criticized the Children of the Watch for. And then Bo stands up for Din and is like, he's every bit the Mandalorian because he's chosen to be one. Uh... And he's chosen to walk the way, and I thought that was a very nice bit of character development for her. And also paralleled really nicely their first meeting, which was shown in the flashback, where he's like, you're not real Mandalorians, and now she's the one explaining that he's a real Mandalorian. We don't have time for that, because there's one shot of one twink who kind of looks like Corky Kreese a little bit, and I've decided that that's Corky Kreese. <laughs> I, I, I fully, 100% support that headcanon. Fully support this headcanon. It's not even headcanon. It's actual it's, canon. It's actual I'm sorry. canon. I don't yep. understand why he that's will, not. He will speak in later episodes, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's Corky. That's, yeah, that for, twink is Corky. For sure. And the fact that Bo doesn't recognize him is like, she's she's purposefully... She's protecting his <laughs> protecting identity. Protecting his identity, yes. She's protecting his identity as a secret force-using Mandalorian. He's going to train Grogu in season four. Is going to be incredible. Yeah, no. That was my first thought upon seeing that twink in the background. I was like, is that Corky? Because I'm desperately starved for Corky content. Though how old would Corky be right now? Corky was, uh, no, he, was... he would be about Bo-Katan's age. Yeah. A little younger than Bo-Katan. Well, no, because he, he might be about Bradley's age and Bradley still looks like a fucking twink. Well, Bo-Katan's 90 in this episode, so, I mean, <laughs> it kind of works out. She's 30 or 40 or 80. We do. We they don't have know. great genes in the Kree's family line, and so that mix with the Kenobi line, it just kind of, you know, you just, because think about it, how good, you know. We, we love, love those good genetics. Yeah, valid. 
So this is probably the most blatant instance of the Bo-Katan bullshit technicality, which, again, my boyfriend immediately called this was going to happen all the way back in episode two when she picked up the Darksaber. He immediately like, oh, she's going to get it back on a technicality. It's going to be some bullshit, like, rules lawyering thing. <laughs> and then lo and behold, Din Djarin pulls a rules lawyer bullshit Bo-Katan technicality and hands her the Darksaber back. I actually kind of like it because Din has spent the last two and a half seasons trying to avoid being the main character. So, this is like, the this combination is... of Dan's yeah. character arc is he gets to pass off the main character mantle to someone else. Yep. Um, which I just, I love. Yeah, it's like them heavily handing the, like, it's we're visually seeing on screen him handing her main character position. Here you go. You're now the main character of the season. Like, <laughs> I really, I was quite, I was quite amused by this scene and I was quite fond of how they, they resolved it. Um, it was nice. My final note is just hell yeah at the shot of her holding the Darksaber again. It was very I did, cool. I did like that a whole lot, and that was a great way to end the episode. Bradley, tell us who wrote and directed this episode. This was written by John Favreau, directed by, we mentioned earlier, Bryce Dallas Howard. All right. I don't think we have anything more we can say about John Favreau or Bryce Dallas Howard on this show. Oh, Bryce I, I did want to say one more thing about Bryce Dallas Howard. Okay, I really do we have we, a thing? I don't know why we didn't mention this. Uh, you know, she's actually married to actor Seth Gable, the bartender droid. I did not know that. That is very I cool. don't know how we overlooked that small little fact, but that's her husband. So okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that, is, that is excellent. Yeah, so there you go. I can't believe I skipped over that little mini fact earlier, but there you go. Um, I actually, I have one more note about okay. John Favreau. And this is for episodes seven and eight. So I just want to say it and then leave, never to be okay. seen or heard from again. Um, I am so happy that one of the spies in the episode The Spies wasn't the armorer. Because I saw that theory just propagate on Twitter, and I was so happy the armorer wasn't an Imperial spy. Anyway, We that's... will get into what, yeah. quote, <laughs> the spies, end quote, means. Because it fooled everyone except a small handful of people. And when someone pointed out to me why The Spies is called The Spies, I went, oh my god, I should have figured that out. I should have known that, and I didn't. But yes, that, that episode title successfully fooled everyone into thinking that someone was a spy. And that's the episode we will be talking about next time. You're welcome for that segue, by the way. That was a segue between episodes, which is impressive. Well, Colton, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have any final thoughts on this episode? Uh, yes, but I'm not going to spend the eight hours uh, required to uh, say them on this podcast. Uh, you can check out my Twitter. I'll create a Twitter thread when this episode comes out um, talking more about this using uh, and that would be that would be Colton X nine. Uh, so it's actually unlike every single other piece of social media I have. My Twitter is Colton Z nine because oh. I made Colton X nine and then I lost the password and got locked out. So okay. I had to make a new Twitter account like five years ago, um, which Never I guess heard... now. Yeah. Never heard anyone turn a uh, a a final thoughts into a plug. There you go. You can follow Colton at Colton Z9 on Twitter. Uh, they will be posting more thoughts about this episode. 
uh, when this episode of Gold Squadron comes out. My final thoughts of the episode, it's well-directed, it's fun, it's well-acted, the production design is great, I just wish the writing were a little bit smarter. I think this could have been a near-perfect episode of Star Wars TV if the writing had just been smarter and thought through its implications a little bit more. So, I'm mad at the episode, but not for the same reason everyone else is mad about the episode, and I do think it was necessary to have an Adventure of the Week plot before we get into our two-part finale. All right, Bradley, uh, what about you? Final thoughts? Uh, Final thoughts, yes. Same thing. I I love the breather between this and the finale because it is a two-part finale, essentially. And this is so much fun. And this is honestly the best episode of the season. I don't care what anybody says. Lizzo, Jack Black, you know, they they made this episode. This is so fucking funny. And this is so Star Wars camp. Like, you can't tell me this is not Star Wars. People are like, oh, this is not my Star Wars. Hashtag not my Star Wars. Whatever. No, this is actual Star Wars. If you take one second to even think about Star Wars. Star Wars is dumb. Star Wars is dumb as fuck. So anybody who likes Star Wars, you like something dumb. You like something stupid. You like something campy. It's hilarious. And this episode proves that. And I loved it. Alrighty. Well, Colton, thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. Do you have anything other than your Twitter at ColtonZ9 that you want to maybe plug? Hint, hint. Um... I feel like there's a podcast or something. I don't know. No. I do feel like uh, <laughs> I want to plug for the audience. Uh, yeah, so again, I am on For Lice, uh, a High Republic Star Wars TTRPG actual play podcast. Uh, we really need to figure out how to shorten that descriptor because that's a lot of words. It's fun. I play uh, IA1N, everyone's favorite assassin droid. And yeah, you should listen. It's fun. I also have some other possible projects happening, but I can't really say anything right now. So I'm not sure why I mentioned it here. Alrighty. Well, you can also find me on For Light and Dice. Uh, I am also a cast member on that. And I will be continuing to tell people to stream Queen's Court, now streaming on Peacock. Bradley worked on that until Bradley has something else for us to plug instead. I do. Oh, good. I do have something. We're going to plug something else. Because this this should come out Memorial Day. So that's, I think it's safe to plug... Um, my next show because it comes out in June. So I think that'll be like a nice okay like thing. And so I'm just do... now learning about this, by the way. Yeah. I will <laughs> sign an NDA if needed. <laughs> no, it's it's definitely I, it's definitely safe. I let me just double check the date just so I don't mess up the date. Okay. So yes, I have a new show coming out that I filmed this past fall. It's called Temptation Island. It's going to be on a USA network. Uh, it's going to air June 14th. So that'll be like the last the last show I worked on um, was was this now based on the name temptation temptation island I'm gonna guess this is the show that you were in Hawaii for this is so while we so, were doing our and or coverage yes. I was in Hawaii and I was filming long, this show mm. long time listeners of gold squadron will remember how much of a headache it was to do and or Bradley <laughs> was in Hawaii well well, where where can the people watch Temptation Island if they so choose to subject themselves to something called Temptation Island? Trust me, uh, this is going to be a very fucking hilarious and amazing season. Um, So Temptation Island is on USA Network. Uh, I don't think it's going to be on Peacock or anything. I think it's just going to be on because Love Island is on Peacock. So I think it's, Temptation Island is going to be on USA Network. <laughs> 
Network. I know it's confusing. Um, but yes, Temptation Island on USA Network, June 14th. Excellent. Well, if you like trashy reality TV, we have a new one for you. Temptation Island uh, that Bradley worked on while we were... <laughs> that must be so hilarious for you to work on that during the day. And then you come back to your hotel room and was like, okay, we're going to record three hours on Andor. Uh, yeah, you know, it was a definitely a juxtaposition of, oh no, I cheated on my boyfriend or girlfriend. And now it's, hey, political unrest. In space. Did you know that violent revolution is justified by the fascist authoritarian system? Well, now you do. Anyway, I'm going to go back to filming this guy talking about how he cheated on his girlfriend or whatever. Oh my god. Alrighty, well, Colton, once again, thank you so much for joining us. And Bradley, you can go ahead and run the socials so we can get to the next episode. Thank you for listening to Gold Squadron Gaze. Did Charles fuck something up? Send us a message at goldsquadrongaze at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at goldsquadgaze. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at goldsquadrongaze. Subscribe to us on YouTube at goldsquadrongaze, where we post the podcast as well as exclusive content. Please join us next week and every week for more of Gold Squadron Gaze. I fucking hate H.P. Lovecraft, the man, and I hate some of his stories, but then some of them I really like. He's such an, a weird little, weird little horrible man. I like that he's dead and he doesn't have Twitter. Me too! Oh my god, could you fucking, Jesus! <laughs> can you fucking imagine? Oh my god, that would be fucking horrible.